Fired Up show starts right now. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. I host each week, and we get into the mechanics and details of what's going on in the political system here in the United States. Well, here we are. We are, uh, as of the publishing of this podcast, we will be 15 days out from the midterm elections here in the United States. And, you know, we're going to talk about that in a few moments. But first, as always, we're going to do our COVID and monkeypox review. So our COVID numbers for this week, uh, 97.2 million cases have been reported. 1.067 million uh, people have died from the disease and 629 million people have been vaccinated. Uh, On the monkeypox front, we are at 27,884 cases of the disease uh, in various areas of the country. And something to keep in mind, uh, news that came across my desk related to COVID. Uh, according to an article in the Associated Press um, from October 21st, uh, Pfizer, which is one of the companies that manufactures the uh, COVID vaccine, says that they will charge $110 to $130 uh, for a dose of its COVID-19 vaccine once the United States government stops buying the shots. But the drug maker uh, claims that it uh, expects many people will continue to be able to receive it for free. Pfizer executives, again, according to this article in the AP, said the commercial pricing for adult doses could start early next year depending upon when the government phases out its program of buying and distributing the shots. Uh, The drug maker said it expects that people with private health insurance or coverage through public programs like Medicare or Medicaid will still pay nothing. The Affordable Care Act requires insurers to cover many recommended vaccines without charging any out-of-pocket expenses. So if you've gotten your health care through the ACA, uh, it looks like that you will still be able to receive your COVID vaccines at no cost. Uh, a spokesman for the company said uh, that they have an income-based assistance program that helps eligible U.S. residents with no insurance to get the shots. Uh, so this price would make the two-dose vaccine more expensive for cash-paying customers than actual flu shots. I'm sorry, I misread that. Uh, they're saying that it would make it... Um, no more expensive for cash paying customers than annual flu shots. Uh, These can range in price from about $50 to $95, depending on the type, according to CBS Health, which runs one of the nation's biggest uh, drugstore chains. Uh, According to a Pfizer executive, uh, Angela Lurkin, uh, the price reflects increased costs for switching to single-dose vials and commercial distribution. Uh, The price was still well below the thresholds, quote, for what would be considered a highly effective vaccine. Uh, To me, that still raises the question on, all right, if the if the doses cost around, uh, you know, $20 to $30 uh, from Pfizer, where's the extra $90 to $100 going? I guess it's going to, you know, distribution channel and, you know, shipping costs and so forth. Um, More than 375 million doses of the original vaccine, which Pfizer developed with the German drug maker BioNTech, have been distributed in the U.S., according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The vaccine, 
brought in $36.78 billion in revenue last year for Pfizer and was the drug maker's top selling product. Analysts predict that it will rack up another $32 billion this year, according to FactSet, but they also expect sales to fall rapidly after that. So we are uh, going to be on our own, I guess, at some point next year once uh, the government program stops. So, you know, smart money and smart thinking would be if you haven't gotten your uh, COVID vaccine, uh, run, do not walk to go get your vaccine before the prices uh, for the doses kick in. All right. Um, so we're going to change gears a little bit here. Um, a- as you know, if you follow this show, uh, this show deals with the mechanics of the political system more so than the individual people in the political system. Although, given what the last you know uh, three years, four years uh, have have brought us, it has been very difficult uh, for yours truly to keep names out of the stories that I've been bringing to you. However, uh, one of the things, uh, particularly now that we are so close again you know as of the airing of this show we will be 15 days uh, out from midterms one of the things that you are probably seeing hearing uh, and experiencing just about everywhere you go are you know news subjects and discussions about polling about the polls you know who's who's polling ahead in you know your race in the races in your state or in your community Who's polling nationally? Uh, what um, what uh, political topics are driving poll numbers uh, across the the U.S. And you may be wondering, you know, how do polls work? Uh, what's behind the the art uh, and arguably the science of polling? Uh, I did a show on this uh, early on in the fired up. Uh, program series. Uh, it was actually show number five, uh, and we're somewhere over uh, 148 shows, uh, you know, having been recorded. So it was a while ago, and you know, we talked about uh, what polls were and so forth. So to kind of reprise that, um, it was a story uh, that I used in that original. Uh, from uh, Dave Roos, and it was an article on how polling works. Uh, you hear about you know political polls uh, every time you turn on the news, but where do all those numbers come from? And the the news cycle, as you know, you know you cannot run away from news about polls. Whether you are listening to the radio, whether you are watching um, you know broadcast television. Uh, whether you are wa- uh, watching cable news or listening to cable radio, uh, even down into social media, you will see political ads and polls that come up you know, so frequently. They, they pretty much have pushed much of the commercial content to the, the sides and to the fringes. Um, but you know, the, the idea is that although polls make great headlines, uh, you you may wonder, uh, particularly if you follow politics like I do, um, 
why, how these polls work and how accurate are they. And what we've talked about in the past is kind of, kind of the science and mechanics of how polls work. Um, you know, according to the article, uh, political polling is a type of public opinion polling. Uh, when done right, public opinion polling is an accurate social science with strict rules about sample size, random selection of participants, and margins of error. However, even the best public opinion poll is only a snapshot of public opinion at the particular moment in time, not an eternal truth. Uh, if you poll public opinion, say for example, on nuclear energy right after a nuclear disaster, it's going to be much lower than the day before the disaster. The same is true for political polls. Voter opinion shifts dramatically from week to week, even day to day, as candidates battle it out on the campaign field. And you know, stepping out of the article for a second, that is a, a so true statement if you've paid attention to some of the uh, major races or most covered races uh, in, in this country uh, coming up to midterms. You know, I'm speaking of the Warnock-Walker race in Georgia, of the you know, Arizona uh, governor's race, all of these uh, ones that we see multiple polls on that seem to change by the hour. Um, this is you know, what uh, we, are, we are living through in this age of uh, polling. So the political polling uh, wasn't always this scientific. According to the article, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, journals would conduct informal straw polls of average citizens uh, to gauge public opinion on politicians in upcoming elections. Uh, a newspaperman traveling on a train might ask the same question to everyone sitting in his car, tally the results, and publish them as fact in the next day's paper. Uh, today, the top polling organizations employ mathematical methods and computer analysis to collect responses from the best representative sample of the American voting public. And that those words, representative sample, are extremely important when you're talking about polls. As we'll see as we get into a little bit of the, the art and science of uh, polling, uh, who you talk to, how you uh, phrase your questions, when you're asking the questions, and where you're asking the questions uh, plays a big role in what the results will look like when the poll is finally published. Uh, so let, let's talk about some of the, the things that we've, we've just mentioned. One of the, the first and most important things is getting a representative sample. So a representative sample is a sample that uh, gives you an accurate uh, picture of the, the body of people that you're surveying. Now, one of the things to keep in mind is that it is, you know, physically impossible to survey, you know, 330 million people in the United States or even the 185 million people who voted in the 2020 election. However, what uh, the science of it is, is to identify the segments of the population, uh, what their respective uh, uh, makeup is in that called the weighting, and that's W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, uh, and 
you know, then identify the demographics that you want to key in on. For example, if you are doing a poll for a Republican uh, candidate or a Republican issue, obviously you want to talk to Republican voters. And you want to talk to not just any old garden variety Republican voters. Depending on the, the nature of the poll and, and what you're going to be asking about, and you'll hear this you know, in reports about poll data, uh, you will hear terms like likely voters or representative voters or just you know, generic Republican voters. And, and those distinctions are very important. Because someone who is a Republican voter may not be planning to go to the polls in the upcoming election and vote. And therefore, their opinion uh, really carries less weight than someone who is likely to uh, go vote. Another term you might hear related to that is, uh, you know, you'll hear Republican voters or lean Republican vote. Uh, what that means is that someone who may or may not be a Republican who is leaning toward voting for a Republican issue or a Republican candidate. So, you know, when you are thinking and designing your poll, you are creating a representative sample of the population. And, you know, if it is a national poll, for instance, you want to take into account the demographics that you're dealing with, you know, and these could include things like ethnicity or race. Uh, in the United States of America, 13% or 14% of the population is African American. Another uh, uh, 15% to 16% is Latino, Latinx, or Hispanic. And then, you know, 11% uh, might be considered Asian and so forth. So you go through and assign those numbers and then go out and seek respondents to your poll to fill in those buckets. And, you know, once you get, you know, a, a significant number or a sufficient number of people in those buckets, you then have what is called a representative sample. Uh, it it uh, allows you to, you know, ask a manageable number of uh, respondents the, the questions and then extrapolate that to the broader population in general. So when you hear... Uh, pollsters talking or, or reports on polls, one of the things that is important for you to pay attention to, one of the two key things that you need to pay attention to or the information you need to have at hand is how big was the survey size and what is the margin of error. Now, you know, it, it's sometimes you will not hear the survey or sample size mentioned. Many times you will, but, but generally you won't hear that as much as you will definitely hear what is called a margin of error. And that margin of error number is something you should pay attention to because it actually uh, is the, the, the swing that the responses could fall into. For example, if you have a poll that is taken with a four-point margin of error, plus or minus, and you have 40% uh, of the respondents, uh, let's say, agreeing with the position expressed in the question. That 4% means that that respondent level could be anywhere from 36% to 44%. Likewise, the opposition numbers 
could be anywhere from 56% to 64%. Again, with 60% being that midpoint, plus or minus a four-point margin of error. So the, the larger the margin of error, the wider the swing is between you know, the extreme upper and extreme lower end of the response base. Um, the second one is the number of respondents. So again, let's take a national example. You know, there are 330 million people, give or take a couple, uh, in the United States right now. If we look at the 2020 election, there were uh, 158 to 163 million uh, people who voted in, in entirety. That means Democrats, Independents, and Republicans. So if you're looking at a poll that uh, states that it represents likely voters, no particular party or affiliation given, uh, they're talking about that 158, 163 million people. If they have a respondent pool of 500 voters, you're, you're asking to define 158 million people with the responses from 500 individuals. Uh, the, the, the error that can be built in on that uh, becomes huge. 500 people is not a representative representative sample of 158 million that that's just pure mathematics um, and again it's it's unlikely it's not going to happen that they are going to go out and survey 158 million people um, but what you want to see is how large is that sample size you know is it a thousand people is it 3,000 people is it 5,000 people the more respondents you get in your poll, the more diversity in your answers, the better the fit to the overall demographic. That's, that's what polls aim to gather. They aim to gather the largest, realistic, uh, accessible sample size that represents the demographics, uh, the, the, the buckets that they are trying to fill, and gives them uh, a... a sample that better reflects uh, the overall electorate. Now, keep in mind, again, even if we're talking, you know, 5,000 uh, respondents or, you know, even 10,000 respondents, that's still a, a minute fraction of the overall pool of people that are, are included in that poll. What do I mean? Again, 5,000 votes uh, is, you know, a, a 0 .00 something uh, fraction of 158 million. So it, there, there's always that inherent, um, I'll, I'll call it a gap. There's always an inherent gap between the number of respondents uh, spoken to in the poll and the reality of the overall uh, demographic size that they are trying to gain. Um, I heard an interesting uh, or read an interesting piece in the research I was doing where one polling company said that a, a typical pollster working for them would spend two hours calling numbers to get one respondent. And, you know, that gives you an idea that, you know, gap poll taking uh, is, is tedious work. It's methodical work. You're trying to fill in the mathematical probability model that you need in order to gain a 
a mathematically representative uh, response rate of the constituency you're trying to get. So, you know, and, and going back, when, when you, you know, see your phones and you see those, you know, un, you know, unlisted numbers or unidentified numbers that are calling you at all hours of the day, uh, and you, you probably kind of know that on the other end of that, that ringing phone is someone who has a poll or a survey that they want you to take. So, you know, if, if you're like most people, myself included, because I get a ton of those calls because I'm on so many, you know, politically uh, connected databases and, you know, distro lists and so forth, um, that, you know, I, it's, it's impossible to answer all of them. I'm, I must get 30, 30 calls a day that are more than likely a, a survey or a poll question call uh, coming to me. Um, so one of the things to understand is that pollsters have to work to get uh, as close to a truly random sample um, as, as they can. Now, you know, how they do that, you know, they have a database that lists all of the phone numbers, both landline and cellular, uh, in the United States, uh, and they, they call from that list. Uh, now, keep in mind that there are a huge number of phone numbers that are, quote, unlisted, close quote, uh, so they won't be in that database. So what happens is then they've got to do what's called random digit dialing where they will uh, use uh, a prefix code. Uh, for example, where I am in Pennsylvania, one of the, the most popular prefix codes uh, is, you know, is 661. So they will dial 661 and you know just start randomly going through 0001 0002 etc etc you get the idea uh, but what happens is they also uh, will will take into account because especially with the lists on databases there's demographic data built into those uh, as to the the person's age gender uh, in many cases their race uh, their their religion might be in there. There'll be all kinds of demographic markers uh, that they can use to help again fill that bucket of you know calls that they need to complete. So you know just to give you an idea, you know, and right now with two weeks to go, uh, we're going to be in a hot and heavy season of polling calls. Uh, your phone's going to ring like crazy. Uh, more and more people are going to be calling to see. You know, are you going to vote for this candidate or that candidate? What's your opinion on this issue or that issue? You know, are you likely to vote? Um, you know, are you likely to have an opinion on who's best to lead the country or who's best to, you know, be the next senator from, you know, your area of the country? So on and so forth. So you have your uh, sampling size. You know, you've got your 5,000 people. Uh, you have uh, assessed what the margin of error, and, and by the way, the real name for that is margin of sampling error, and it's a scientific formula based on the number of uh, people uh, contacted and communicated with. Um, so your poll's all set, right? No, not even close. The next things you've got to consider um, are and, and these are you know even more critical than the number of people you talk to, and you know the the error rate that your poll will incur is your questions and answers. 
depending on what the question is, how it's constructed, what the potential answers are, if it's a multiple choice, um, you know, is is really where the rubber meets the road in terms of how effective and accurate and representative a poll is going to be. For example, if I'm surveying uh, for uh, candidates for, uh, let's say, a, a fictitious Senate seat, and you know, I've got you know two people, you know, or even more people. I've got you know four people. It's a it's a it's a primary, um, or three people is a primary. So you know, we've got you know candidate Smith, candidate Jones, candidate Mitchell, and I ask the question, you know, of of you. So, sir or madam, in the upcoming election, uh, if are, are you going to vote for candidate Mitchell or uh, are you going to vote for one of the other candidates? How would you expect that respondent to answer? Well, history and science and, you know, track records show that the majority of people are going to pick the named ca candidate that you gave them as their answer. They go, oh, yeah, I'm going to vote for candidate Mitchell uh, without, you know, giving uh, true consideration to the other two candidates that are available for choice. So you can ask a poll question that is called a leading question, um, you know, and it, there's a lot of subtlety in how that works. Now, they may not come out and, you know, distinctly say you're going to vote for candidate Mitchell or are you going to vote for one of the others uh, they may say are you more likely to vote for candidate Mitchell uh, than the other two candidates uh, that oppose him or her or you know uh, what is your preference uh, when uh, you know you have candidate Mitchell uh, and you have you know candidate Smith and candidate Jones uh, are you more likely to vote for candidate Mitchell uh, and that would most usually be answered as a yes/no question. Uh, and then, if you uh, say no, then the pollster will dig down into their subsequent list of follow-up questions and say, "Well, are you more likely to vote for candidate Smith over candidate Jones?" And if you say no, then they're going to say, "Are so? Are you more likely to vote for candidate Jones for the Senate seat in the upcoming election?" So basically by wording the question in the way they did, they have led you to a conclusion that you may or may not have originally held. Uh, you may have you know, been a strong supporter of candidate Mitchell, but because of the way you answer the question, it's going to come out that you're actually a supporter of candidate Jones. So you know, when you, you listen to the questions that pollsters ask you, should, should you, you know, uh, accept the participation in a poll. Keep in mind that the question should be worded uh, or delivered in such a way as not to lead you to an expected answer or uh, provide you with an answer that uh, is different than you know what you uh, anticipated uh, to happen. So you know there, there's uh, sometimes. There is trickery, um, and you know that leads into a second article that I saw, and it listed top ten ways to get misleading poll results. And you know, as I just said, number one, 
leading questions uh, can point respondents astray. So, you know, <laughs> and, and they give an interesting example uh, in how a leading question can just, you know, totally take a right turn off of what you think. And they pose, quote, have you stopped beating your wife? And they say it's the classic leading question, yes or no. There's no answer that gets you off the hook. So, yeah, if you said, yes, I've stopped beating my wife, okay, that means you've, you've beat your wife in the past? Uh, well, no, but you said you've stopped beating your wife, so you must have, have beat her at least once in the past. You see where I'm going? So, you know, and, you know, the next one they, they quote is double-barreled or vague questions. Uh, which can confuse the respondent uh, when you know you ask more than one thing at a time you offer or offer non-exclusive choices respondents don't really know what the answers really mean and neither do the questioners for example you know a recent fortune 500 company staff survey asked training and career planning are available to me true or false what if training is but career planning isn't all right, so you see there, if, if you get uh, multiple possible answers, remember the candidate Smith versus candidate Jones uh, type answer, um, you know, you can confuse the respondent and skew your results. Uh, double negatives in questions cause double trouble. Um, so, you know, that one is, you know, fairly straightforward. You know, they, they give an example. Does it seem possible, and, and this one, uh, was from a Roper poll for the American Jewish community in 1992. Uh, just for context, does it seem possible or does it seem impossible to you that the Nazi extermination of the Jews never happened? So, you know, the, again, it's a double negative um, that can be extremely confusing in terms of your data. Um, all right, let's... um. Let's take a break here. We're midway through the list. When we come back on the other side, we'll pick this up and continue. You're listening to the Fired Up Podcast right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for all that you're doing to help everyone in this country make their voices heard in this year's election and in every election. Your work has never been more important. From the ongoing pandemic to the passion and protests we've seen for racial and social justice, it's clear that we're in the middle of a big moment in this country. And that means we need leadership that honestly reflects who we are and what we stand for. Our job between now and November is to make sure everyone we know understands that the power to make change rests on our ability to cast a vote. Fair and safe voting is gonna be more important than ever this year. And that's why When We All Vote is fighting to expand vote by mail, in-person early voting, and online voter registration. Now I'm gonna be honest, we're really gonna need your help to make these efforts a success. Luckily, the first step is an easy one. Just spread the word. Make sure your friends, families, and communities are registered, know their rights, and are fully prepared to vote by mail this year or vote early in person. So go to whenweallvote.org to find out more and get yourselves, your families, and your friends ready to make their voices heard. 
Let's get more folks across the country trained with the tools, the resources, and the information they'll need to vote. Because this election couldn't be more important. And that was a public service announcement from your friends at WJMS Media and from us here at Fired Up. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, um, do not let uh, a poll or any number of polls keep you from getting to the polls and exercising your right to vote. Uh, there have been cases in American history where, uh, particularly the way uh, the polls are reported, that because of the time difference, uh, polls on the West, West Coast are still open when polls have closed. And there were instances in the past where results from the Eastern uh, polls uh, indicated you know, a, a win for one candidate that definitely impacted the people who had not yet headed out to vote uh, on the West Coast. And they thought, well, this is a done deal. I don't need to go vote. Do not let that happen. Exercise your right to vote. Get out and vote no matter what the polls tell you. All right. So uh, let's get back into our, our subject. And we're uh, going to continue with the top 10 uh, things that impact polls. Um, number four, question order effects can skew your results. Just like how a poll question is worded, where it appears in the poll can also uh, be a leading factor in terms of uh, taking you to a foregone conclusion. So be aware of that and consider your poll questions carefully as you answer. Uh, number five, going beyond the margin of error can hurt your client's intentional, I'm sorry, political health. Uh, and this just goes back to what I was saying about, you know, the, the margin of sampling error or margin of error uh, is uh, sometimes can indicate a, a swing in one way or another that could actually uh, negate the results of the poll. Uh, number six, make sure the data says what the pollster or headline says. The poll questions should be firmly based in the reality of the subject matter of the poll. Uh, so if, if you know, the headlines are about you know, one candidate and you know, their struggles, the poll question should reflect uh, what that is uh, about. Um, so, you know, the next is uh, your slip on random sampling will show and it will embarrass you. And this is more for the pollsters than uh, the poll respondents. Uh, so, you know, the, the polls only represent the people who respond to them. So to get an accurate sample, everyone needs an equal chance to be interviewed. So it's another way of saying random sampling is a must and should be the guiding principle uh, as you are delivering your poll to the public. Uh, another is apply Reagan's rule to focus group members. Trust, but verify. Uh, see, some polls uh, have a reward structure built in where, you know, answer this poll and get a, you know, $50 gift card and so forth. And there are people that will say anything just to make sure that they get that gift card. So if you have a reward-based poll, uh, make sure that you are verifying uh, or the data should be verified uh, that it is accurate uh, with what you are polling for. Uh, number nine, 
be a turnout skeptic, registered voters may not be likely voters. And this goes back to something I said at the first segment. Uh, one of the categories or two of the categories of people who respond to polls are registered voters or likely voters. Uh, as in the 2020 election, as I've mentioned, there was uh, something like 160 to 180 million uh, people who actually voted, although that still left, uh, I believe it was on the order of 25 million voters who were registered but didn't vote. So, you know, the, the key between uh, registered voter and likely voter is very important. Um, so, and the last point they mention is that first of a kind candidates create turnout surges. And, you know, clearly we saw this uh, back in the uh, election that led to President Obama. And, you know, we have seen it in other elections where someone who is the first to uh, to enter into a political realm uh, may generate an interest surge uh, in your uh, voter turnout and may also generate surges that are outside of the normal realm of what you would expect in a poll uh, simply because the individual that you're polling for is new. So those are you know 10 things that can impact uh, the quality and accuracy of your poll and you know something to uh, consider both if you are someone who conducts polls or uh, also someone who responds to polls. So the, the key is if you are a person who is being polled or being surveyed, uh, think carefully, consider your responses. Uh, don't let emotion uh, drive your answers. Don't let uh, popularity drive your answers. Uh, answer, answer truly answer what you really feel so that the poll that you are participating in uh, you are helping it to be as accurate as possible and as representative as possible so you know as we are inundated with polls uh, as we approach both the midterms and then once we get past the midterms uh, the fun doesn't stop good friends we're going to get polled more and more and more about the national races uh, we're already seeing polls you know, about which candidates are likely to run, which candidates uh, uh, or potential candidates are likely to replace a candidate and, and so forth and so on. So, you know, just be aware of how polls are constructed, uh, what, they, what they do, and what the objective uh, of the polls uh, are. So, you know, one of the things I'd like to hear and if you have questions, uh, if you have opinions on polls, you know, do you think there's too many of them? Do you think that they are, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, just a stupid exercise to gather information we already know uh, or, or whatever? Send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. Tell me your thoughts on the polling process here in the U.S. Uh, <laughs> Obviously, there are a ton of them. Uh, we, uh, we are hard-pressed to escape them intruding or trying to intrude on our daily activities. So I'd love to know what you think of polls in general, uh, polls maybe that you have participated in, 
And you know, what did you think of the questions? What did you think of you know, the, the overall delivery of the poll? Uh, when did they call you? Uh, was it, you know, six in the morning or, you know, 11 o'clock at night? You know, did they call you in the middle of your work day, etc.? So send that email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on polling here in the United States. All right. So we're going to take a, a very significant pivot to a different story that came across my desk uh, in the course of researching for the show. Um, and it, it doesn't have uh, anything to do with polling, but it is uh, something that uh, I, I find very interesting. And I'm, I'm curious uh, as to you know, whether or not this comes as a surprise to anybody. So if I post the question that uh, slavery in the United States uh, is illegal and has been outlawed, uh, there is no slavery in the United States. Uh, would you say that is a true statement or a false statement? Well, as an article that came out from CNN, from Shauna Mizell, uh, that came out uh, just yesterday on Sunday, uh, it shows voters in five states have the chance to wipe slavery and indentured servitude off the books. And you would go, wait, slavery was, was eliminated in 1865. You know, the Emancipation Proclamation, Abraham Lincoln. You know, it, it's what the Civil War was fought over to end slavery in this country. Well, when it was outlawed in the U.S., and this is from the article, in 1865, the 13th Amendment included one exception, and it's this. Quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The 13th Amendment reads. So, in fact, slavery is still on the books in this country if you are a convicted felon serving time in prison. You are allowed under law to be uh, treated as a slave, to perform, quote, slave labor, end quote. Uh, so the penalty has remained on the books in more than a dozen states, even though it hasn't been enforced since the Civil War. Uh, but coming up next month, coming up the, in the midterms, voters in Alabama, Louisiana, Vermont, Oregon, and Tennessee will be given the opportunity to, to exorcise the punishment from their state's constitutions once and for all. And this is according to a CNN review of pending ballot initiatives. The article cites, the proposed amendments would either explicitly rule out slavery and indentured servitude as potential punishments or remove the terms from state law altogether. So, you know, advocates are hailing the initiatives as long overdue and hope that state-level movements will one day lead to the removal of such language from the 13th Amendment altogether, although some argument argue that the movement underscores a larger need to lift rules permitting forced labor from inmates for little to no pay, 
a, frac a practice that has been linked to indentured servitude. Uh, none of the five changes being proposed next month would eliminate prison work. So in, in, the, in the states that I mentioned, for example, in Alabama, voters will have a chance to vote on an overhaul state constitution in November. The revised version includes changes to rid racist language and aims to make the constitution more accessible to Alabama citizens. And via, you know, voters will be invited to answer yes or no to this proposed ballot measure. Proposing adoption of the Constitution of Alabama 2022, which is a recompilation of the Constitution of Alabama of 1901, uh, prepared in accordance with Amendment 951, uh, arranging the Constitution in proper articles, parts, and sections, uh, removing racist language, deleting duplicated and repealed provisions, and consolidating provisions regarding economic development. Uh, one of the things that it would in include in its changes is from what it says currently that, in the quote, the Constitution of Alabama, that no form of slavery shall exist in this state and there shall not be any involuntary ser servitude otherwise than for the punishment of crime for, of which the party shall have been duly convicted. They want to change that to that no form of slavery shall exist in this state and there shall not be any involuntary servitude, period, full stop. So in Louisiana, uh, same, same scenario. Uh, again, it's marked as a yes or no question, and the new constitution would say slavery and involuntary servitude are prohibited, period, full stop. In Oregon, so the uh, ballot measure aims to remove all language, creating an exception, and makes the prohibition against slavery and involuntary servitude unequivocal, period, full stop. Uh, and, you know, it, it's the similar in Tennessee, although some wiggle room is incorporated in theirs. Uh, as it says, uh, the measure will ask that slavery and indentured servitude shall be forever prohibited while including, quote, nothing in this section shall prohibit an inmate from working uh, when the inmate has been duly convicted of a crime. So, you know, it, it eliminates calling it slavery and indentured servitude, but still allows for, you know, essentially uh, low cost or no cost prison labor. Uh, in Vermont, and I, I have to admit, I was kind of surprised that Vermont had such uh, a, a, a law in its books. Uh, Vermont, which was the first U.S. colony to abolish slavery outright, is seeking to, to change the Constitution by removing the exception clause. Uh, if approved, the Constitution will read that all persons are born equally free and independent and have certain natural, inherent, and unalienable rights, amongst which are the enjoying and defending uh, life and liberty, uh, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Therefore, slavery and indentured servitude in any form are prohibited, full stop. So those are the five states that have 
provisions on the ballot coming up uh, in two weeks to uh, amend their state constitutions, basically to eliminate uh, five of the 12 uh, states that uh, still had uh, these arcane uh, rules still on their books. Now, again, as I said earlier, the remaining states don't enforce this uh, rule, but yet it remains part of their state constitutions. And you could argue that uh, if, if these five states uh, can do this, why can't uh, all of the remaining seven follow suit and just eliminate forever this notion of slavery and indentured servitude uh, for uh, convicted uh, felons uh, forever? Uh, and hopefully, you know, that will come as they see the results of these five states. If these uh, ballot initiatives receive overwhelming support, I would hazard a guess that the other states will place them, you know, in the ballots on their next uh, statewide elections uh, to uh, make it consistent across, um, you know, all all of the, the states in the United States. So, you know, and, and there are other states. Nebraska and Utah voters decided to remove language allowing slavery as a punishment from their constitutions in 2020's general election. In 2018, Colorado voters approved a ballot measure uh, to amend the state constitution and remove the possibility of enslaving someone for a crime. So, you know, the, 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 the initiative is gaining ground, uh, but, you know, needs that final push. So if you are in any of the, the seven states that still allow this, uh, excluding the ones I just mentioned, uh, you know, reach out to your uh, state elected officials and let them know that you would like to see slavery and indentured servitude completely exercised from your state constitutions. Uh, you know, forevermore, period, full stop. Now, that would be, you know, the first step. The next step would be to look at uh, some level of fair compensation for work performed for, uh, you know, convicted individuals in the state penal systems. Uh, right now, a lot of the state penal systems will essentially hire out their prisoners uh, for labor, uh, for pennies on the dollar, and, you know, because, you know, they're, they're you know, quote, prisoners, and, you know, the, the states gain a full measure of the value of the work done and only pay a small fraction of the cost, which is another issue that needs to be addressed by this country. So uh, I found that interesting, and I think, and surprising, frankly, uh, it, it is something that we need to have conversation about. Uh, we will keep an eye on the progress of this issue and, and bring you any updates or changes uh, as they happen. All right. And our final story for this uh, episode of the Fired Up podcast. Uh, we started out and we, we've talked at, at length about uh, polling and the mechanics of polling. And if you remember back to the 2016 election uh, where you know, the candidates were Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Uh, and, and bear in mind that polling showed that right up until election day, 
the overwhelming sense, uh, just about every pollster uh, that, that was national in scope uh, was projecting that Hillary Clinton was going to easily uh, win the presidential election and you know, become the president of the United States. And then, you know, election day and election night and, you know, the day after happened and, you know, all of a sudden it, it seemed like out of nowhere, uh, Donald Trump got the 270 plus uh, electoral votes he needed in order to win the presidency. And, you know, this was not only a shock to the country, it was a culture shock to the, the polling industry. And everybody turned their eyes to the pollsters and said, how could you get this so wrong? Um, so, you know, with, with that as a background, uh, what we have seen in recent weeks is what was considered a reasonable chance for the Democrats to uh, retain control of at least the Senate. Uh, the House uh, was uh, kind of always... Uh, lined up to become Republican, uh, if for no other reason than the effect of gerrymandering uh, just created an outsized influence of Republican votes uh, that would lead to more Republican House members uh, being successful than Democratic House members. So while the, the House was considered uh, a, a remote, remote chance to retain and control of the Democrats, uh, the Senate was, was considered to be more solid. Well, what we're seeing and what, what we're hearing in, in news articles coming out as we move into the final stages of the midterms, uh, and this is from Axios, an article in, in Axios by Josh Kraushar, and it says, uh, polling, spending treads, trends, and conversations with leading Democratic and Republican strategists suggest it is now very possible House Republicans win back the majority uh, in the House on November 8th with more than 20 House seats uh, once the upper level of most analysts' projections. The big picture, two weeks out from the midterms, evidence points to a re-emerging red wave that could sweep GOP control of both chambers. In the Senate, Republican officials are now bullish that they'll gain at least the one seat necessary to regain the majority. So the article asks why it matters. Uh, the national political environment shapes the trajectory of all of the battleground races, meaning a big enough wave could touch some of the bluest districts. There's also an outside chance it sweeps in flawed Republican Senate nominees in Georgia and Arizona, despite their underwhelming campaigns against battle-tested Democratic incumbents. Uh, how we got here? And the answer is simple. Inflation, inflation, inflation. Abortion may have peaked too soon as a motivating issue uh, to give Democrats a maximum boost in November. The late timing of gas prices rebound, conversely, puts more wind in the GOP's sails. So again, the article in Axios talks about President Biden delivered a speech on Tuesday pledging to codify Roe as his first act if Democrats elect more senators and keep the House. 
but there's worry in Democratic circles that abortion-centric messaging is keeping the candidates from talking about the economy. A new Monmouth poll, there's that word, found 63% of respondents wish Biden would give more attention to the issues that are important to your family, including 36% of Democrats. What we are watching, uh, according to Axios, the latest public polling shows Republicans pulling ahead on the generic ballot. Uh, The Monmouth survey showed GOP with a six-point advantage among registered voters, uh, 50% to 44%, with more Republicans extremely motivated to vote, 64%, than Democrats, 59%. So it, it talks, you know, and, and stepping out of the article, you know, as we talked about, um, you know, registered voters. And keep in mind, there's a difference between a registered voter and a likely voter. Um, but they're showing, you know, Republicans having you know, more momentum among their registered voters than Democrats do. Uh, in the article, a Pennsylvania Senate poll conducted this month for the AARP by Biden pollster John Anzalone and Trump pollster Terry Fabrizio found Democrat John Fetterman's lead shrank to a statistical tie against Republican Mehmet Oz. Uh, Independents now back Oz by a seven-point margin. And we've talked about the independent vote on this show many times over the, uh, the past weeks, months, uh, and year. Um, you know, the Cook Political Reports House editor David Wasserman said this week, many of the 15 Democrats in, quote, lean Democratic seats are, quote, teetering on the edge. That's a top 30 Democratic held seats already in toss-up or worse territory. Wasserman name-checked House Democrats campaign chief Sean Patrick Maloney and progressive uh, star Katie Porter as two prominent Dems both double di- in double-digit Biden districts who are in danger. Uh, we are hearing House Dems are triaging resources to defend candidates in solidly blue territory. Last week, Democratic House Majority PAC moved funds from an Oregon district Biden carried by nine points to salvage a suburban Portland district Biden won by 13 points. So, you know, the, the upshot here is um, you know, much like the uh, Trump-Clinton uh, outcomes in the 2016 uh, race, uh, the foregone conclusion and, you know, counting your eggs, you know, counting your chickens before they're hatched uh, strategy that Democrats seem to have employed uh, may end up uh, not coming to fruition at all. So, you know, we we need to you know make sure that you know as we think about this, the the likelihood that we are going to be looking at Republicans controlling two of the three, um, or, or or you know the the House and Senate with Democrats uh, holding the White House, uh, much like you know President Obama had in his in his uh, second term. Um, and, you know, that's going to be problematic on a lot of levels. Uh, we will likely uh, come back after the uh, midterms and do our own version of the postmortem 
to look at exactly you know what happened and try and put some why it happened to it but you know the the main takeaway that I want to put forward as we get ready to wrap up this edition of fired up is you know if you're a Democrat uh, you need to make sure that nothing uh, hell nor high water keeps you from getting your vote cast and counted in the upcoming midterms um, you know Democrats uh, if you want to uh, mitigate the the damage uh, you clearly need to be focused on you know gaining uh, seats in the Senate uh, as I said in the in the prior segment uh, with gerrymandering and you know all of the things that the Republicans have put in place uh, it is likely that Republicans will in fact take uh, take control of the house I don't think it's going to be 20 seats but it it only needs uh, to get above you know 219 in order to achieve uh, the the control of the house and you know that is is going to be problematic uh, the Republicans have already said that if they gain the house and the Senate their first uh, act uh, and and this has been talked about by several Republican strategists both more mainstream strategists as well as uh, you know those among the MAGA crowd that the the they're going to put uh, they're thinking to put you know Donald Trump as Speaker of the House and then impeaching uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris thus making Donald Trump president of the United States again so you know think about that but also think about that uh, the ideas and proposals that the Republicans have been talking about national abortion bans and you know repealing uh, uh, Brown v. Board of Education and resegregating schools. All of these things that have been kind of uh, fantastical journey uh, topics uh, could become, you know, the reality that we will see uh, if Republicans gain control of the House and the Senate. So, you know, there's there's that to consider. So the idea, you know, get out, get registered. Uh, make sure your registration is valid and above all get out and vote no matter what party you're in uh, and for you independent voters out there uh, make sure that you get out and vote as well so that will wrap up this edition of fired up uh, thank you all for listening as always again if you have comments or questions please send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com I would love to get your thoughts uh, I would love to be able to respond to them here on the show. So with that being said, please, everyone, stay safe. Uh, if you haven't gotten your vaccines or boosters, please go out and get it done, particularly before any uh, prices uh, or price increases come into play. So with that being said, everybody, stay safe, have a great week, and we will do this all again in seven days. <music>